If you've got a Bible this morning, you can open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll pick up reading in verse 13, and we'll read down through chapter 2, verse 7. As our text this morning, as we continue in the next five series with a sermon entitled Launching Leaders. We'll read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 to 1 Timothy, or I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there as I read for us this morning. Beginning in 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, Paul writes, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is God's Word. I remember my senior year in high school taking uh, a course, uh, Biology 2. And in Biology 2, we learned a lot of anatomy and physiology. We learned about the different organs. We learned about the different uh, systems that work within our body. We learned about different muscles, tissues, tendons, ligaments, how all those things were connected to each other, right? The thigh bones connected to the hip bone and on and on and on. And so we got lectures in that course about all the different aspects of the human body and then we shifted to a lab section of that course in which we got to see and experience some of those things that we had been studying by dissecting a cat. Mmm, smelled good every single day. The smell even got better as time went on, right? And, I, and as a dog lover, okay, as a dog lover, I have to say that was the only good cat I've ever seen in my life. Right? As we dissected that cat, we pulled apart the different muscles and tendons and ligaments and looked at the eye sockets and looked at the internal organs as we opened the body cavity up, all that kinds of stuff. We got to take what we had learned in the lectures and begin to then apply it in the labs. Right? And listen, I, I, I can joke about that experience my senior year in high school, but the reality is that healthy churches that are concerned about launching leaders for future ministry, right, want to create a lab-like experience for them in the life of the local church so that what they hear in lectures in Bible college or in seminary actually can grow flesh in the life of a local church as they get a taste of what ministry is like, of what leadership is like, so that their development isn't stunted because they've received all this information but had no opportunity for application. 
Right? Healthy churches that are concerned with the future of the church, right? they want to create this lab-like experience. Right? That's why you see teaching hospitals that bring in nurses for clinical rotations. I remember when my wife was in nursing school and went through rotations in different uh, departments that she would potentially have the opportunity to work in. That's why those in education bring in student teachers into the classroom to help them get a taste of what that's like, right? What education is like in the classroom. That's why hospitals bring in doctors, medical students for residencies to learn the trade that they're going to be practicing whenever they're done. Right? This, is, this takes place in all types of other fields. And for us as a church, if we're going to be serious about launching leaders, we've got to create that lab-like experience. Now, over the last a uh, couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to visit with each of our life groups as I've gone from group to group and home to home visiting about the Next Five initiative. All right, and many of you thanked me as I came to your life group. I would just encourage you, you could thank my wife this morning as well. Uh, there was about seven days in a row that I was out of the house in the evenings uh, for ministry-related activity. And so after the service, maybe just go give her a hug and say thanks, right? Uh, because she bore the brunt of that as I was gone every single evening. But as I had the opportunity to visit about, visit about the Next Five vision and answer questions about land and facility needs, one of the questions that was asked to me in one of those group settings was this, like how large do we, we talked about the size of land and facility we would need, how large do we envision becoming long term? And my response to that question was twofold. One, I think first, I don't think any of us should want to place a cap on what the Lord is able to do or wants to do in and through the life of our church, right? So that whenever we hit a certain number, we're not going to put chains on the doors and stop welcoming people in, right? But on the flip side, what I would love to give my life to laboring for is instead of a church of four to five thousand right i would love to see 10 churches of four to five hundred instead of a church of 3500 10 churches of 350 spread across our region so instead of there being one large regional church there would be multiple smaller local churches in the, their respective communities that's what we're, that's what i've that's been on my heart from the found, founding of redeemer our elders have discussed being a church planting church. We've cast vision for that, right? That we want to see rather than a large, large church. And not that there's anything wrong with large churches. I don't think there's anything inherently evil or unbiblical about large churches. But I would prefer to see a reproduction of what the Lord is doing here in multiple other local churches for a whole lot of reasons. But to do that, listen, we need to prepare to launch leaders who would have a firm grasp on the gospel. A firm grasp on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They would have a commitment to the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. And they would have a deep love for the communities in which God to which God has called them. And if this is going to become a reality, then our church needs to create a non-negotiable Commitment to launching leaders so that they can see, experience, and apply all the things that they're learning in Bible college, all the things that they're learning in seminary on the field. Right? A church that not only cares about their church, but a church that cares about the church. Okay? Right? Yes, it's right to care and be concerned about our church, the church that God has 
planted us in and, and we're members of, but also have a church concerned about the church, right? So that we can raise up and send out other leaders, other pastors, other ministry leaders in order to see other churches planted, revitalized and become healthy. And so in the video that if you watched it over the last week, when I say we want to become a teaching church, I don't just mean a church that teaches the Bible, right? Yes, we are going to do that. We have done that. We are doing that. We will continue to do that. But a teaching church in the same way that a hospital is a teaching hospital that produces other doctors and other nurses that we would see God use us to produce other pastors and other ministry leaders. And so the way we would envision doing that would be through internships with college-aged young adults and bringing them in for either three-month summer windows or nine-month school year windows or creating residencies for graduate-level students who have a desire to move toward pastoring, church planting, revitalization, helping them learn from all the mistakes that we've made, all the good that God has done in our midst, and then be able to send them out to plant churches or revitalize churches in our area so that we can see multiple churches healthy churches, uh, local churches, rather than one large regional church. So that's what we're aiming for. And if we're going to do that, there's got to be a non-negotiable commitment to creating that lab experience for future leaders. And I believe in this text that I've read for us this morning out of 1 Timothy, we see the vital need for that. That Paul saw in his own life, that Paul saw in the life of Timothy there as he pastored in Ephesus. The book of 2 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who was pastoring in the city of Ephesus. And he writes it somewhere about 30 years or so after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And it's not necessarily a manual for church organization, but it's Paul's response to the false doctrine that had been circulating in Ephesus upon his departure and encouraging Timothy to continue in the faith. And so in this particular text I've read for us this morning, I think there's three things that if we're going to be serious about launching leaders, we have to wrap our minds around. Why should we care about the church and not just our church? Why should we care about launching leaders? And I believe Paul tells us the first thing here is because when we begin to, if we're going to be serious about launching leaders, we've got to prepare them for the work. Prepare them for the work that they have ahead of them. Now listen, there's quite a few folks who've made jokes over the years and assumed that pastors and ministry leaders, like they work maybe one, two days a week, right? They might prepare a sermon, preach a sermon, do a little counseling here and there, right? Do a Bible study midweek, and then they play golf and fish the rest of the time, right? Maybe you've made that joke, All right? <clears throat> and that kind of thinking isn't new. In fact, the false teachers in Paul's day, right? Uh, for Paul and Timothy, the, the ones that are pushing a back, a back, back against there in Ephesus, they've been suggesting the same thing, that a mark of God's favor on their life, a mark of God's uh, 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 love and affection for them would be a, a, a present life that is absent of hardship, that is absent of suffering, that is absent of difficult labor. But yet, yet, the illustrations that Paul uses in verses 3 to 6 of, of chapter 2 reveal a reality that is quite contrary to that notion. Because in verses 3 to 6, Paul sets some expectations for what a life of ministry would look like for those, those that, 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 that Paul is encouraging Timothy to launch out into leadership. And if we're going to be serious about launching leaders, a part of that is setting healthy expectations for what a life of ministry looks like. 
And I think Paul helps us do that here with these three pictures. First of all, he talks about the work of a soldier. Right? In, 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 in verse 3. He talks about a soldier, and that leads us to believe that this work is a type of war, and it involves uh, perseverance through hardships. And listen, perseverance through hardships that not all Christians are aware of, and that not all Christians experience. Right? And so listen, this is not a pity party in the pulpit this Sunday, okay? But it's just an expression of the reality of what pastors and ministry leaders face as they engage in the work that God's called them to. He says, suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, knowing that any soldier who goes to war, he concerns himself with the commands of their commanding officer, the one who is above them. He's not concerned about civilian affairs or civilian duties or things that are going on right back at home, because when he is at war, he is fully focused and fully engaged on the task before him and the enemy that's attacking him. And listen, pastoral ministry, ministry leadership, those who have walked that road, they will tell you to a person that it involves a life of hardship, that it involves a life of suffering, that it involves a life of labor and turmoil that many in the church don't understand and they have not experienced. And then it happens personally that you will be attacked by the enemy, right? Sometimes you'll be attacked by friendly fire within the church, of people who want to criticize, of people who don't value and don't honor those whom God has set over them in leadership. At times those attacks come because people don't like the way that a certain leader teaches or they don't like what a certain leader teaches, right? They want somebody who is more charismatic, someone who is more eloquent, or someone who's a little softer, okay? That can scratch behind the ears a little bit better, Right? And so they're critical of a particular leader and you experience those kinds of attacks. At times people are critical and divisive and manipulative. I've experienced all of those things in 25 years of ministry. But you don't only experience attacks from people, but also from personal spiritual forces. Especially whenever you have to preach hard truths. And say hard things from the Scriptures. There have been times when I've left this pulpit and my nose began to bleed because of the stress that I was under of feeling the weight of the text and the call that God was placing upon us as a church. Right? And at times I've wrestled with lack of clarity or a lack of confidence or a lack of certainty with a voice in my head saying, are you sure you want to say that this weekend? These things, listen, they're not just coincidence. They are spiritual attacks. In addition, the Apostle Paul says, listen, I love the way he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, he talks about how he's been beaten and shipwrecked and he's been left for dead on multiple occasions. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among the false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Now, I don't know that I can relate to all of those things the Apostle Paul experienced. But I can relate to verse 28 when he says, not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. 
Listen, there is a weight that those in leadership carry that they feel like it's not a switch that you can turn off whenever you go home because you're still thinking about the person that you just had a counseling appointment with and the condition of their soul. You're still thinking about the future direction of the church. You're still thinking about how are we going to solve these issues? How are we going to minister to these people? Right? There is a daily concern, a daily burden, other translations render it, for the church. That many Christians don't understand or have not experienced. And Paul says the work is a type of war and it will require perseverance in the midst of hardships. That's an expectation that he lays out. Second of all, he uses the picture of an athlete. To describe the fact that the work requires preparation and it requires endurance. Preparation and endurance. In the ancient Olympic and Isthmian games, in fact, the Isthmian games at times were much larger than even the Olympic games in the ancient world there on the Greek peninsula. But in order for a participant to compete, they had to show proof of their preparation for the contest. Right? And that preparation involved 10 months of rigorous training. Right? A training regimen in which their diet was thoroughly scrutinized, in which their physical activity was logged and tracked, and they had to be able to show that they had eaten what had been prescribed and trained to prepare for the competition. Otherwise, they were turned aside and not allowed to compete. And those who submitted themselves to the routine were brought in, and those who didn't were just like the rest of us, like weekend warriors, you know? Right, we'll go play some flag football out on the field, but man, we're not suiting up in pads and helmets. Okay? They were the weekend warriors. In fact, in athletics today, the same is true because what often separates professionals from amateurs whenever the skill level is similar is what? A dedication, a discipline to prepare and sacrifice, right? To put in the work. Right? There have been, that's why there have been many people who have been drafted really high in the professional sports drafts right? come in the first round or the second round of the NFL draft or the MLB draft or the NBA draft, and yet all they relied upon were the natural abilities they've had over the course of their lives that got them so far, but they refused to put in their work to prepare for this new level of competition that they were now entering, and so they got a big sign-in bonus, and they spent it all on a big house, and now they're broke as a joke. Because they wouldn't put in the work. They wouldn't prepare. They did not endure. And the same is true in ministry leadership. It's, it requires a preparation and an endurance. H.B. Charles, uh, uh, another pastor, said it this way. He said, the desire to preach without the discipline to study is just a desire to perform. <laughs> and that was... That was uh, it was like a rock right between the eyes. The desire to preach without the discipline to study and prepare is just the desire to perform in front of people like any other actor would on a stage. I had many tell me that when I felt the Lord calling me to, to pastoral ministry that the calling to preach was a call to prepare and I think they were right. Now, Listen, those, the, the types of preparation may look different for different types of people. It may, for some, preparation may come on the campus of a Bible college or a seminary. For others, it may come in the walls of a local church as they're invested in, mentored, and discipled. Right? In, in, in H.B. Charles, again, in a recent interview, he spoke about the differences between black churches and white churches whenever somebody comes forward and says they feel a call to preach. He, says, he said, all my white brothers, right, whenever they said they felt a call to preach, the church says, amen. Yes, we're going to send you to seminary. They sent him off to seminary, and they took all the classes, and they got all the training. 
He said, but in our black church, when a brother comes forward and says, I have a call to preach, they say, let's see, right? Let's put you up there and see if God's given you that gift or that calling, right? And so there's different pathways of preparation, okay? And oftentimes, the best, I think, pathway is probably a combination of the two, both the academy and the church, where you're learning sound doctrine in ways that it might be hard for the average pastor to give to someone week in and week out with all the other duties they have in the life of the local church. But you're also coming alongside and you're saying, I have a call to preach. And they say, let's get you up there and see what God's given you. Right? Allow you to get some reps to see if that gift can be fanned into flame as you exercise that thing. And so listen, in a teaching kind of church, then there will be people who would rotate through the pulpit. Right? And Lord willing, I hope, people who can preach much better than I. And that would be glorious to see us send out people who are better than we are to do ministry in the future that will require different skills than what we have today, but the same commitment to the Gospel and to the Word of God. The third illustration that he uses is farmers. Farmers. The work of cultivation and harvest. Listen, in an industrialized society, I I, I think we've forgotten to some degree the type of labor needed to put food on the table in an agricultural society. Right? When we can go to the grocery store and pick up our week's, of, week's worth of groceries in an hour and a half and be home, stock the pantry, stock the fridge, and all you've got to do is open the doors and there you've got all these different meals that you can prepare and they're right there at your fingertips. That is life in an industrialized society, in an agricultural society like what Paul would have been living in and what Jesus would have been living in. When they use these illustrations of farmers, I think one of the things they're getting at is that the work is constant. It is constant, but it is fruitful. Listen, in the farmer in the ancient world would have been turning and tilling the soil without modern implements, mind you. There was no John Deere green. Okay, back in Paul's day when he's writing to Timothy. Okay, there's no big tractors with, with implements attached to the back that's turning over large sections of the field at a time. But they had hand implements that they're using to turn and till the soil so that they can then begin to scatter the seed. And after they scatter the seed, they irrigate it, they water it, they tend it, they cultivate it. And they watch those tender young plants begin to grow. And it takes patience on the part of the farmer to watch that process go from seed right to harvest as the plant grows and eventually it begins to set seed and if it's grain they harvest the grain chop it down carry it to the threshing floor thresh it in their day to separate the chaff from the wheat right or if it's fruit waiting sometimes years for that tree or that vine to begin to bear fruit as it flowers and put on grapes or put on apricots or whatever it is they're waiting for Right? He likens it to this work of the farmer who then at the end of that harvest, what does he do? He retills, he retools, he recasts seed for the next. Right? There's constant labor involved in this. And I think that's part of what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he describes the hardworking farmer right, who is deserving of the first of the crops. Right? It, 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 and, and listen, the same the same mentality must be embraced in ministry leadership because when you're working with people, listen, you're never done. Those of you who work with people, you know that. 
Right? There's always another phone call. There's always another email. Always another meeting. Always another counseling session. Always another encouragement to be given. Right? Always another crisis to be averted. There's always something that's on the, the, the agenda for that day. Right? It, the work is constant. But when you're selling a product or you're building a building or installing a system, there's a finish point, right? You put in some landscaping, you step back and you look, oh, that's so beautiful, right? You're done. But the work is never done, just like a farmer's work is never done. And it may be more strenuous in some seasons than others, but it never leaves your mind. So Paul says, listen, if you think that ministry leadership and pastoral ministry revolves around two days of work a week and then lots of discretionary time, he says, consider the soldier, consider the farmer, consider the athlete. Because nothing could be further from the truth. Because you take all these things together and the three images, they remind us that beyond, listen, here's the encouraging part, that beyond warfare is victory. That beyond athletic effort is a prize. And beyond the labor in the fields is a crop. It is fruitfulness that comes forth. And this is a call for leaders like Timothy. Listen, church, here's, this is important. For leaders like Timothy to be motivated by the right things. The right things amid their labor. And they, the, the church throughout every generation has needed this. But I believe that we live in a day and time of instant successes in which this word is perhaps more needed than ever before. Because so often, right, so often, ministry leaders in our day are motivated not by the preparation and the endurance as they look forward to the prize or the casting of seed and the tilling of soil as they look forward to a crop in the future or... Right, the discipline that it requires to persevere through hardship and difficulty like a soldier. That's not knowing that victory is out there somewhere on the horizon, but rather what motivates many ministry leaders today is instant success. Power and platforms, six-figure salaries, and large estates that they can purchase in order to write off on their taxes all of their income as their housing allowance. All that six-figure income as their housing allowance. So they don't have to pay taxes and they can have private plane rides to the next speaking gig. That is oftentimes, at least in the last 15 years, in the emergence of celebrity leaders and celebrity pastors, that has been what's driving the train. And so knowing that beyond warfare is victory, beyond effort is a prize, beyond labor is a crop, that takes patience and perseverance and endurance and preparation. That's the kind of work that the lab is intended to prepare leaders for. So preparing leaders for the work is the first reason we should care about launching them. But the second reason is that as we prepare these leaders for the work so that they can move forward and they can protect and pass on the word. They can protect and pass on the word. At the end of chapter 1, Paul says that nearly everyone in the province of Asia has abandoned him. And he charges Timothy to guard the good deposit of sound teaching through the Holy Spirit. Right? He says everybody. Now that may be a little hyperbole on Paul's part. Right? But everybody. So many people have abandoned the faith and they've succumbed to false teaching that I can say everyone, and I mean almost everyone. Right? 
Because already in Paul's day, it would seem that there are so many false gospels floating around, right, that people have already begun to gather for themselves people who would scratch where they itch and give them whatever their itching ears want to hear. And so Paul says to Timothy, the good deposit that's been entrusted to you of this pattern of sound teaching. Other translations say the pattern of healthy teaching. In other words, teaching that's going to produce health in you. Right? That's not going to set up certain false expectations that are going to crash your faith on the rocks whenever God doesn't cure you of cancer, whenever God doesn't provide a seven-figure windfall of an inheritance that's coming your way because it's your season, right? When those kinds of things don't happen and your faith gets shipwrecked, he says you need to have healthy teaching, sound teaching, and take that what's been entrusted to you, Timothy, through my example and through my words and guard it, protect it, so that it doesn't become distorted and manipulated and used by false teachers to their own ends, right? He says... So many people in the province have already begun to do this. And listen, church, there's, we can say in our day as well that there are all sorts of false gospels that are floating around. The airwaves, the podcasts, the video ministries, the television ministries of even prominent pastors and preachers that are scratching people where they itch. And listen, a part of launching leaders is raising up the kinds of pastors and future ministry leaders who are going to protect what's been entrusted to us. The faith as Jude says, right, the faith that's once for all been delivered to the saints. That we should contend for. Right? That we should fight for. Right? And so these ministry leaders, listen, they need to be prepared as good boxers. Okay, some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but there's a difference between a boxer and a brawler. Okay? A boxer is someone who trains, right, in the gym. Now, I'm a terrible boxer, okay? Uh, but they train in the gym with the punching bag, right? And so they're boom, 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 boom. That whole thing, okay? It's about as good as I can get it, all right? And so they're training constantly, right? Learning how to defend, learning how to attack, learning, right, the uppercut, the jab to the kidneys, right, the cross, the right cross, the left cross, all those things. They're learning those skills, right? So that whenever they step into the ring and the bell rings and the fight is on, they can defend themselves and they can go on the offense as well to try to win the match, there's a difference between a boxer who has gloves on and is in the ring contending versus a brawler who's out in the street and takes a glass bottle and shatters it and says, bring it on, right? One is contending by the rules. The other is doing anything to win at all costs. And whenever we talk about contending for the faith, we're not talking about creating brawlers who go around picking fights and looking for fights, but whenever folks come into the church with false notions of who God is and false doctrines that say things that are untrue about God, right? that we're able to put on the gloves and contend in the ring for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints so that it's not distorted, it's not manipulated, it's not used to the selfish ends of some people. But we're not going out trying to pick fights with everyone. Big difference between a brawler and a boxer. So the kinds of leaders that are able to protect the word as it's been entrusted to them, who would ring the bell loud and clear and consistent with historic Christian orthodoxy. Now, Paul says you've got to protect the word not just so that you can put it in a museum behind a glass case, right? 
Right, that's, what we, that's what we think of sometimes when we think of protecting something. We've got to put up big walls and big fences and glass cases so that people can't touch those documents because if they touch those documents, the oils in their fingers are going to rub off on them and over the course of time they're going to disintegrate. That's not what Paul's envisioning here because he goes on in chapter 2 to say this, that what was entrusted to you, what should Timothy do with it? Entrust it to others, other faithful men who could also teach who could also guard that good deposit. He says you should pass it on. Right? From generation to generation. From person to person. As you protect the word, you're passing it on. You're entrusting it to others as it was entrusted to you. And listen, church, all through the Bible you see examples of this. Of this kind of, of passing on. Putting forward. Investing in future generations, even those who are coming after them or alongside of them. You see it with Moses and Joshua in the Old Testament. You see it with Elijah and Elisha. You see it with Jesus and his 12 apostles. You see it with Paul and Timothy here. You see that what what, what they were doing, they're training others to do in that process so that the gospel can continue to advance until God blows the trumpet and says enough is enough and Jesus returns on a white horse to set up His kingdom and so that all the, 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 the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters of the sea. Right? Until that day comes that gospel work is continuing. Churches are being planted. The gospel is being proclaimed. People are being discipled. That word is continuing to go forward. As it was entrusted to us, it would be entrusted to others. And on and on and on and on. Because, listen, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. In a very real sense, church, in a very real sense, only parents can raise children, and only children can raise parents. Hmm? Some of you are like, what in the world does that mean? Right? Only parents can raise children, right? As you instruct them in the home, as you invest in them in the home, as you teach them, as you discipline, as you correct them, as you engage with them. Right? So, so my kids can't just, they know this, they can't get away with whatever they want to say and whatever they want to do in our home. Right? Because there are guidelines, there are boundaries. Okay? And so we're trying to raise them not to be children, but to be adults. Okay? And so there are expectations on them, there are responsibilities that they have. Whenever they say things that are out of bounds, we correct that and go back and instruct and say, how could you say that differently? How could you engage in that conversation with more respect? How could you carry yourself in a way that would be different than what you did? Right? And so there's all this conversation. But listen, so we are laboring to raise our children into adults. But I'll tell you this, that our children have raised us into parents. How? Listen, you know this if you've had a child. You know this. Because when that child is born into the world, right? Two months later, ten months later, two years later, Right? Whenever it is, you come to realize just how selfish you really are. <laughs> because now, all of your energy is revolving around the needs of this child who's waking up every three hours to eat and to poop and then to go back to sleep. Right? All of your energies is going into this child. Right? And so, all, so what you're doing is you're having to pour out the things that you were once so concerned about to pour into your children the things that they need. 
right? And so you're raising your children to become adults and they have raised you into parents who are able to set their needs, their wants, their desires aside for the needs of, of, of their children and others who are around them. Only parents can raise children. And only children can raise parents. And the same is true in the church. Listen, only pastors who give their lives and their ministry to the people of the church can raise a church, but only a church can raise a pastor. Through teaching, through preaching, through counsel, through relationships, a pastor is aiming to raise a church into the kind of people who would fulfill Jesus' mission where He has sent them. But only that church through their interactions with that pastor, through grace, through challenge at times, right, is able to raise a pastor. And church, if we're going to be serious about launching leaders, we've got to, 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 to think about not just our church, but the church, preparing them for the work so they can pass on and protect the word, so they can become the kind of ministry leaders and pastors that God would desire because of our influence in their life and the way that we've helped raise them. You've raised me. You're still raising me. All right? I'm still learning in this process. So prepare them for the work so they can protect and pass on the word. And then finally, Paul says, listen, we need a crop of ministry leaders in the future who would learn to depend on grace and not gifts. On grace and not gifts. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy that on account of the situation they face in Ephesus, he says, all the labor there is to do there, right? The type of preparation they'll need as an athlete, the type of, in, of, of perseverance they'll need as a soldier, the type of, 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 of looking forward to the future and the harvest that's coming as the farmer, all that labor that needs to be done there and all the opposition they would face from those who would distort that deposit that had been entrusted to them, that they're to depend on what? For strength in order to do what God has called them to do. He doesn't say, but you then, my child, be strengthened by the gifts that are in you by these abilities that you have, right? By your ability to turn a phrase, by your ability to speak in eloquent ways. He doesn't say entrust yourself or depend on the gifts that God has given you. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, we need leaders and pastors who would Depend on grace and not gifts. The words be strengthened in the text is a passive imperative, which means this. It's a command that is to be carried out on Timothy by someone else. Right? So it's not an active imperative. He's not saying, Timothy, you do this. He's saying, Timothy, you allow this to be done. Allow this to be done to you, Timothy. That you'd have the strength that you need. You'd have the resolve that you need. You'd have the clarity that you need to move forward in the face of all this opposition from the false teachers and all the distortions of the gospel that are circulating in your culture. That you would have everything that you need because of the grace 
that is ours in Christ Jesus. That that would fuel you. Your union with Jesus would give you a heart that is resolved, a mind that is clear, and hands that are strong to work like a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Depend on grace. And this kind of dependency, church, has never been needed more in the life of the church than it is needed today because of two things. One, pastoral burnout is a real thing. Is a real thing. Right? I have hit that wall personally. And I know other faithful ministry leaders in our community who have as well. Many of which are not in ministry any longer. Pastoral burnout is real. And, and you guys are like, well, you only work two days a week. We cleared that up earlier, okay? There's an ongoing burden and concern for the church that you cannot shut off that is laborious. And it's real. And it will consume future leaders if they do not learn to depend upon the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Listen, when I hit that wall, I had people slapping me in the face trying to talk sense into me. Because I had been one who thought, I can step out and depend on my giftings. Right? The Lord, man, I, hmm. the pride that God exposed in me, the arrogance that God brought to the surface of thinking that somehow I was God's gift to the church. But what I discovered is that the church was God's gift to me to expose those things in me and teach me that if I wanted to have a future and longevity and at 75, see the, the, the seed that's being brought to the threshing floor like the farmer. It wasn't going to be about my gifts. It was going to be about God's grace. But the second reason this kind of dependency is needed in pastoral leadership today is not only because pastoral burnout's a real thing, but because spiritual abuse is as well. Listen, there are many pastors who depend on the force of their personality or the extent of their abilities in order to lead the church rather than the Holy Spirit and the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And one of the ways that you begin to see the difference, right, between those who would depend upon the force of their personality and the extent of their abilities, okay, is whenever people disagree with them, they are pushed out. They're marginalized. Their voices are silenced. They're not humble enough to listen and to hear the concerns of others about the direction that the church is going and, and take those into account and take those to the Lord in prayer and say, God, give me grace to see. Is this real or not? But there's an automatic, because they, they are God's gift to the church and they believe they have all the answers and they're going to use their winsomeness of their personality and the force of their personality to either influence everyone to go the direction they want to go or to run over them whenever they don't and to leave a trail of dead bodies behind them. That's a real thing today as well. Because they're not depending on grace. So listen, churches, we think about being a church that's going to launch other leaders who are prepared for the work to protect and pass on the Word, who are depending upon God's grace. 
for his empowerment to do what he's called him to do. As we seek the Lord to become that kind of church, that's the only way we're going to see multiple local churches in this community rather than one regional church. Is if we're willing to invest our labor and our energy and our resources into launching leaders. So my hope is that if we move into the next five, we're able to stand up this internship program, stand up a residency program, so that we as a church can raise other pastors, we can raise other ministry leaders and send them out into the fields which Jesus himself said were wide unto harvest. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the time this morning. Time to sing together, the time to pray together, time to be encouraged together from your word. And Father, I pray that as we consider the kind of church that you're calling us to be, God, not the kind of church that would just platform the most forceful personality and everyone would line up behind them, but Father, the kind of church that's willing to give opportunities for lab-like experiences for young men and young women who would serve in various ministry contexts to make an investment in the future of the church. To see you raise up and send out future church planters. Those who would revitalize stagnant, stale, dying churches with a commitment to the full counsel of the Scriptures, a firm grip on the Gospel, and a deep love for the communities to which you're sending them. That we would become the kind of people who are preparing them for the kind of labor that they will give their lives to. The kind of people who value and cherish your word and we want to instill in the life of every future pastor who might come through our doors a commitment to entrust, uh, the, the, guarding that good deposit that was entrusted to them so they could entrust it to others and pass it on. So they could raise churches and churches could raise other pastors and that work could continue until your son comes as we wait for Him and depend on His grace to do what You have called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.